faculty have a very strong commitment to their discipline, right? And to their, their identity and their discipline. Um, we wanna make sure that there's a balance between that and meeting the unique needs of the students that we serve. Hello, Titans, and welcome to Fram and Friends, a Cal State Fullerton podcast in partnership with Titan Radio. Today, we have the honor of speaking with a Titan educator who has truly made a global impact in higher education leadership, social justice, equity, access, and so much more. As always, here to introduce her and kick things off is our host and president, Fram Burgi. Well, uh, good, good morning or good afternoon whenever you're listening to this. I hope you're ha having a good day or a good evening. It's Nice to be with you again as we get ready to start our, uh, our new academic year coming back in person. Very excited for that. But uh, I'm even more excited today to have Don Pearson with us, uh, who is, uh, I, would, I would call her a mentor, a friend, uh, uh, a confidant, uh, just a, an amazing person uh, that uh, I have leaned on heavily over the last uh, number of years that I've been at Cal State Fullerton. And She's, uh, you know, no matter how far I lean, she always is there to support me. She holds me up. So I appreciate her coming on and, and talking to us. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, her background and uh, uh, how she made her way here and then uh, get into some, uh, uh, you know, uh, some pieces about uh, where we think Cal State Fullerton is going, where the country is going, uh, wherever the conversation leads us. I always know it's going to be a great one with Dawn. So Don, it's great to see you. It's been a while. And even though we're on Zoom, I still get to see your smiling face. Great to see you. Good to see you as well. Well, uh, why don't we start uh, with something about you so our, our, our listeners know about you, our, uh, your background, where you grew up, your educational experience, maybe how you ended up in higher ed. Give us a, give us a thumbnail of who, who Don is. Okay, I'll give you the short version so that we'll have time to talk about other things today. Um, but I am a Don Person and I am uh, originally from the Pittsburgh area of Pennsylvania. And you'll sometimes hear a little bit of the Pittsburghese in my voice and my dialect when I talk. Uh, they say that those of us from Pittsburgh have our own language. There are particular words that we either can't say or we just say very differently than the rest of the world. Uh, but I, that's, that's where I started in the Pittsburgh area. I grew up on a small uh, farm outside of Pittsburgh in a small village called Hookstown. And Hookstown still exists as a village. Uh, my father still resides there. He's 92 years of age. We're blessed to have him uh, in our community. And in fact, shortly uh, in the very near future, I'll be going back home to visit with him and my uh, other family members that are in the area. The exciting thing for me is that I have had the experience and the opportunity to grow up in what's called the farm culture. And the farming culture has a very different way of kind of navigating the world, you know, and I had a, a taste of that as a young person. Um, grew up in a predominantly, really an all white community in a rural area, but close enough to the city that I was able to interact in, in non-rural environments as well as a child. So my first year of, of, of formal schooling uh, came, uh, I went to a predominantly black kindergarten with a black teacher. And she's the only black teacher I had until I was in my junior year of college. Oh my, okay. Uh, Mrs. Garrett was her name. And for years, she when she would see my parents, 
uh, she would ask about me and for years I would ask my parents about her. She certainly had a major influence on my life and because of Mrs. Garrett, I knew I wanted to be a teacher. So being a teacher for me started many, many, many years ago. But blending that experience, going to this all black kindergarten and then my parents moving us out into a farmland where there was no one black in our community but us. My family was the only black community out there at the time. It was a shock to my system, even as a five-year-old at that time, it was very, very shocking. Um, my parents though were smart in that they balanced my life out for me by having me spend time with my grandmothers during the summer months uh, in what were more urban uh, mixed racial communities. And that was really, I think, helpful for me growing up and just helping me stay connected to my roots, my culture and develop an identity as an African-American person. Um, I also was very active in the church. Uh, the church has played a major role in my identity development. My father was a pastor, an associate pastor, an assistant pastor. Never, I don't think he ever served in the major pastoral role, lead pastor. If he did, it was after I had left uh, the home environment. Uh, and my mother was an evangelist and her specialty was teaching Bible school at the Hardy Bible School out of Pittsburgh. Mm. Uh, my mother was a nurse and a very smart woman. She, uh, when she took her nursing exam when I was a sophomore, I think, in high school, she went back to school and became kind of re-upped her certification, I guess you would say, in her education as a nurse and became a licensed practical nurse um, and ranked in the top 2% in this country for the national nursing exam at that time. So she wow, was a very, wow, very wow. smart lady. Um, my father was a hardworking man. He worked in the steel mill. Uh, he spent his whole life, his whole career in Jones and Lachlan steel industries. And that was a, a large um, steel company that existed and pretty much served as an economic and financial source for a town that, was, that my mother grew up in called Aliquippa, Pennsylvania. And you may have heard of Aliquippa because of some football stars that have come out of there like Tony Dorsett, for example. Right. Yeah. Um, so my dad was a hardworking man. He worked the farm to feed us and to take care of us. And then he worked in the steel mill. Both of my parents were very service oriented, uh, very involved with being of help and service to the communities that we, that we were involved with. So that would be Hookstown, Aliquippa, and even Pittsburgh to some degree. Um, and they emphasized, my parents emphasized education and the value of education. So I'm one of six children. So our, our family nucleus was eight. And then we had our grandmothers, grandfathers, aunts and uncles, and so it goes, right? So the extended family was much larger. We're very close-knit, um, continue to be close-knit, even though we're all spread out around the country now. Uh, we make sure that we connect on a regular basis. Um, and, and thank goodness for the internet during COVID because that really helped serve us as a family to stay connected. Um, what else can I tell you? I went to school at Slippery Rock University after high school. Uh, and then that's a teaching, one of the teaching institutions in Pennsylvania. I wanna go back for just a minute though, because it's an important story that I should share with you all. Um, I, because this influenced where I am today, I experienced a lot of um, navigating at a very young age, kind of the racial social milieu of the, our American uh, uh, culture. And I learned very early on that I was different, 
than the other children that I interacted with. And as kids, we didn't care. As kids, we were all just kids. But the minute adults got involved, the minute adults engaged in some way in those interactions with us as children, they pointed out the differences. And they made um, a bigger issue of the differences than we ever would have made as children. As children, the things that we saw that were different about each other were more a curiosity than anything else. It was the adults who placed labels on those differences or valued or devalued those differences, if you, if you all follow what I mean. And sure. so that early on kind of connected with me and it became a part of my understanding of how the world worked. And so it became pretty clear to me at a young age that being white in America was very different than being black in America. And my parents, I think, worked really hard to help me and my siblings navigate um, those waters and terrains that we encountered. Because um, as a kid, you don't understand. You don't know why it's okay for someone to play with you in school, but they're not allowed to play with you outside of school. As a kid, you don't understand when a teacher treats you differently than they do other kids in your classroom. Um, and and then, you know, there's no rhyme or reason for it. So my mother was really good at being an advocate for me and my siblings when it came to navigating the schools. And the school system that I went, uh, that I went to was called Southside High School. And we were the Rams, that was our mascot. And uh, my brothers were very active in athletics and my sister and I were active in cheerleading, yearbook, student leadership positions and so forth. Um, so we were, we were engaged kids in, in uh, high school. And as a result of that, um, we were also very popular at the schools that we attended. And I remember that one of my, at my senior year, the students voted for me to give one of the graduation speeches. And the principal called me into his office and he said, um, I think it would be good for you to talk about in your speech how well you've been accepted by everyone here. And I looked at him and I said, why, why, why does that need to be my topic? I'm supposed to talk about the future that we were kind of talking about the past, the present and the future and our, the three of us that were gonna speak. And he said, well, I just think it would be a really good thing for you to acknowledge that and to thank people for being so accepting of you. So of course, I didn't know what to say to him at that moment. He was a principal. My parents had taught me to be respectful of my elders and positions of authority. But I went home and told my mother. And before I could get the whole story out of my uh, mouth, she was in the car and headed to the school to have a conversation with that principal about the conversation he had had with me. And my parents were really very um, astute and smart people. They never talked to us about the details of any of the conversations that they had and their roles advocating for us in the schools. But my mother came home and said to me, you write the speech that you want to write and you say what you want to say to your graduating class. And that was it. That was the end of the conversation. And what that modeled for me was the importance of, as a, of a parent being involved in the life of their child, not only the academics, but also the other components and aspects of schooling. So that was one thing it, it conveyed to me. The second thing was that adult business was adult business. And that as a child, I didn't need to know what she said or how she said it or what was said, but the outcome was important. And that was for me to have the opportunity to share what I wanted to share to my classmates that day. And I, I stepped back to tell you that story because it framed 
the way that I left that environment and then went on to college. And when I got into college, I became very active with the Black Student Union and with student government. And we worked together in college while I was getting my academic studies underway. I was also very active in kind of the student movement at that time. And there was a lot going on at that school at Slippery Rock. It was a beautiful place to get an education, uh, but it was all, there were a lot of challenges. This was during the, the mid seventies to the late seventies. And, and you know we were struggling a lot and trying to understand who we were coming out of the sixties civil rights movement and so forth, how is all this going to work? And as a society, we were trying to figure that out. And certainly those of us in college were trying to make sense and meaning of it. So to make a long story short, Fram, because I think you asked me this question a while ago now, um, to make a long story short, what I did while I was in college was advocate for other African-American and Hispanic students that did not have the same quality of education experience and finances that I had. Um, going to college. And I saw a lot of people come in who were a lot smarter than me, a lot more talented and capable, but leave. They didn't get their education. So I started asking questions along with my colleagues and my friends at the Black Student Union. We started asking questions. Why is this? Why is it? Why is this school kind of like a revolving door with people coming in and out? And the impact that that was having on the Black community, us, us losing friends on a regular basis, and then also the impact it was having on those individuals who left their community, their, their uh, high school environment to come to college only to go back home a year later with no degree. So as a result of that, we were able to get some attention, if you will, to what was going on at the institution. We had held some press conferences. We called in some various people at the local level to help us. Slippery Rock is also in kind of an isolated rural area in the Northern part of, uh, of uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, Northwest Pennsylvania. So we needed to call people from Pittsburgh and other communities to come and help us as students in that endeavor. So I learned early the importance of having a voice, using your voice and advocating for those who are less fortunate than yourself. Again, these are things that my parents had modeled for years as I was growing up as a child. Um, and they pushed education. It was never a question of, are you going to college? It was always, which college do you wanna to go to? Uh, and all of us went to college in our, my family, except for my youngest brother, who just had no inclination, but he owns his own business now and has done well for himself. But all the rest of us did go to college. Um, so that's kind of in a nutshell, the, the first part of my life. I then, uh, at the end of my uh, undergraduate degree, I majored in special and elementary education. And I was in school right when public law 142 was, um, passed. And that was a very special movement in special education where individualized instruction was being prescribed for all students with special needs. So we had been trained to deal with IEPs and so forth. But when I graduated, the schools had not caught up with the law. And so there was a gap between what was going on in schools and what we had been trained to do and what I believed was um, necessary and required to be a special educator. So I found myself in a situation where I didn't feel like I could find a job that was going to allow me to um, present and teach and educate the way that I had been trained. So I, I talked with my parents about it and they said, well, maybe you should keep going to school. Maybe you should go on and get a, a master's degree. Met with my advisor and he said, well, you know, we got this new program coming out in social justice and learning disabilities. 
at that time, learning disabilities was a new field. So they encouraged me, my advisor encouraged me to get my master's in learning disability and I really love curriculum design. So he encouraged me to do some work in that area with him. He served on the president of the United States Advisory Board for Special Ed. So I had a link and a connection that I could make outside of my immediate world through him. So anyway, I went on and got my master's in special education learning disabilities. And about a third of the way through that, the director of the Educational Opportunity Program approached me and said, hey, would you like to work with us? We have a graduate assistantship program. I'd like to have you in as a GA. Well, that was right up my alley because I've been doing all that advocacy work. So I started uh, doing that work. And then a year or so later, they hired me full time as a, an administrator in a faculty role, actually. But it was, a, it was a faculty position, but it was administrative work. So I wasn't teaching in the classroom. My, my assignment was on a faculty line, but I was really responsible for advising and supporting and providing retention programs for students of color. And I did that for a while and I got hooked on it. I loved it because I could do curriculum design through workshops and event planning. And then I could do advising and supporting students and I could work with faculty and administrators to help them better understand the needs of black and Latina students. And I, I ended up working with international students and then it just took off. The next thing I knew I'd become this uh, student affairs person uh, by default really, which is how a lot of us end up in the field. Uh, and then from there, I never looked back. I continued using what I had learned in my skills in special ed, elementary education, but applying it in student affairs and um, went from working at my alma mater that I'd been fighting with for three years, right? Working there for a period of time and then transitioning to Colorado State University, then back east to Lafayette College and then to New York, um, to Columbia University where I changed my career trajectory. Uh, after I finished my doctorate at Columbia, my advisor and I talked and he said, you know, you can have a major impact if you think about teaching because then you're influencing a lot of different campuses at one time rather than just being on one campus and trying to bring about change. So I thought about his idea, had to do some negotiating because, you know, faculty salaries aren't the same as administrative salaries, right? So I had to think that through carefully. Uh, that a 10 month position, you don't get paid quite as much and so forth as an administrator. But long story short, we worked it out and I switched from serving as a student affairs administrator to teaching full-time at Columbia Teachers College. That was my first teaching position. Was there for a while and then uh, the president and the um, leadership, I guess you would say, Teachers College changed and transitioned in a different direction than the way we had been going and developing multicultural programs and curriculum and diversifying the student body and so forth. And there was a transitional shift that occurred and a difference in approach to understanding diversity and how we valued it. And so we had a parting of the ways, I guess you would say is a nice way to put it. And um, my mentor, one of my mentors at Columbia had moved here to California and invited me to join the faculty at Cal State Long Beach. And I thought it would be a better fit for me because of the kind of students that we have in the CSU and what my own roots, what my roots and, and perspective was. I was a first generation college student. So I'd be working more with first generation college students. And you know, how can you resist um, California, the weather, the beach? They told me at Long Beach, I'd have an office where I could see the beach from my office. <laughs> and if you stand on your tiptoes and look way out, from the second floor of the building I was in, I could maybe see a little bit of sand, or at least I thought it was when I looked out that window. 
But anyway, I went to Long Beach and was there for about 11, 12 years, had a great time there, helped build um, their master's program up, uh, one of the you know, premier master programs that we have in the state, actually, the student development higher ed program, and then help them develop a, a, a joint doctoral program between UCI and, and uh, for the CSUs. And then that then emerged into what we have now as our uh, independent doctoral program in educational leadership for the community college emphasis. And I don't know, five or six years into that, Louise Adler snagged me one day, we got to talking and she said, we need some help over at Fullerton. Why don't you come over and help us out? And that was the beginning of a, a long relationship that uh, has been very um, uh, potent, I think, for the university, for me, for the students that we've served, and uh, also one that I've really enjoyed. So I've now, I'm now at the point where I'm furping, um, finished my first year of furping in a month, and uh, I uh, am no longer teaching, but just providing research support and assistance through our Center for Research and Educational Access and Leadership, which is one of the proudest uh, contributions that I feel that I've made to the profession in helping to uh, create the next generation of socially just researchers, uh, because that's an area where we really struggle in education to do research that really helps us to define problems from an equity-based orientation and then respond in that, in that same vein. So that was a long answer to one question, Fram. I'm sorry I took so long, but gives you a nice overview, I think, of who I am and a little bit about my, my background in terms of my family, my education, my mission, and you know what drives me, what keeps me moving on a daily basis. Well, Don, that's actually perfect because I could listen to you all day. What I, I have to tell you, um, you, are, you are so good at sharing your story and speaking that while I was watching you and listening, I was seeing you grow. I was seeing you grow up in that small town and seeing you, uh, uh, I don't know if these are the right words, but maybe feel like a fish out of water at some point when you first went out to the farm and then realizing uh, through the support of your family, especially, and I can see what an influence they have been on you, um, that you that you belonged and that and that uh, you had a mom and dad were going to make sure that uh, you had every chance, uh, whether it was in a uh, graduation speech or in anything else in life. And then off the slippery rock, I could see you growing the whole way. So it just uh, um, and yet you started with uh, such an important uh, piece, which was Mrs. Garrett and how and what uh, how what she meant to you. And I think all of us can think back to and it's only going to be a few of those teachers that we had in grade school and then and in high school that uh, um, that had that impact to help set us up. So I see this foundation under you of mom and dad and Mrs. Garrett and uh, and uh, I can see that it still is holding you up today. I mean, you are you've obviously come a long, long way and done a lot of different things, but that's knit into your DNA, which is a, just a really, really uh, special thing. But one thing that I felt throughout the whole thing was positivity, if I might say, that uh, uh, you would see challenges. And this is how this is it's people think, ask me about Don person, this is what I say, you, you will see challenges, but you will not either reject them, turn away or um, be concerned, but wade right in. 
uh, and with an, with an attitude that we can make this change. We we can do this. I will do this. And that's now I know why. Now I know why. Yeah, and so, that that I wanted to add right from that. Um, is encapsulated in the phrase that your mom said, you write the speech that you want to give. Yeah. For your life, for your life. Yeah, absolutely. That's a wonderful point. Thank you for that, Matt. So you sort of finished um, where, uh, you know, my knowledge of you comes in and that's serial. Um, uh, I had, you know, one of the first things I did when I came to Cal State Fullerton was visit serial. Um, as an interim president coming in, I wanted to get my sense of what was going on on the campus. And you were so gracious. You, you invited me in and gave me a tour and showed me um, everything that was going on. And when I walked away, the feeling I had was a, a feeling of overwhelming wow for what was going on. And yet, when I came home to explain to Julie what you did, I wasn't sure I could really do it because <laughs> uh, there were so many things going on and there uh, and coming at me that day from so many different people who are all so excited about what they were doing. So share with our, our audience um, that's filled with Titans, especially uh, students and faculty and staff, but also our Titan community, what C-Real is and um, you know, what its mission is and its impact, uh, how you got drawn in and, and uh, you know, I, I know it, uh, it is your heart and soul from everything that I've ever talked to you about. Well, that, this is a fun part of the conversation to have to talk about C-Real, right? So C-Real was a vision that I had years ago because I saw a gap in the way that we were training our students um, across the board that you know, students who were in the sciences would get a lot of hands-on experience in lab work, right? But students who weren't selected to do that kind of work, you know, the work is that the labs can only hold so many students. If they didn't have that experience, they were kind of lacking a bit when they graduated, right? In the sciences. Students who were in the social sciences, there were only so many research projects going on there as well. They didn't get that experience. They were lacking a little bit, especially if they wanted to go on to get their master's or doctorates. Uh, and students in education had even fewer opportunities in places like uh, the CSU to get that kind of hands-on experience because we weren't doing a lot of research back, this was a while back, and we do a whole lot more now. But even still, our students are often part-time and they're working full-time and it's difficult for them to squeeze in the opportunities to do research. So, so anyway, having said all of that, I also was looking at what we were doing in the field and trying to understand educational problems from, and you know, education is one of the most interdisciplinary fields that we have. And so it takes all of us working together to produce teachers. You know, it's not like the College of Education does that. We do that in conjunction and in collaboration with all of the other uh, colleges that exist. We just take the lead in providing the curriculum and the direction for it but we get people from all over the university who get engage in that process. So anyway, it was like, okay, how can we do more to provide an opportunity for students who may not get a chance to do it within their specific discipline to come together in, in an interdisciplinary fashion, fashion, I'm sorry, um, think about educational problems. 
because educational problems affect all of us. So um, what I did was I talked with the Dean at that time, it was Claire Cavallaro, who's now retired, but talked with her about this idea that we could create a center that serves in partnership with our, these, the partners that they were creating out of the College of Ed um, and also serve the university to provide assessment and evaluation services. Uh, but doing it from a lens that allowed students to understand and our partners to understand how they can best serve inclusive communities of people. So underserved communities that have been neglected or ignored or not adequately served historically could be better served. So she, she bought into the idea and we started um, with a small group of students, doctoral and masters primarily, and then I expanded that out. And basically what we do is an organization comes to us and says, hey, we need someone to evaluate how well we're doing what we said we were going to do. And Fran, most of our work comes from folks who have gotten federal, state, or county grants, and they are required to have an evaluator involved or they desire to have an evaluator. So that's most of our work. The other work we get comes from someone who says, I have an idea, something I'd like to try, but I don't know if it's going to work. Can you, all can you all evaluate this to see if it's working? And then typically that's the kind of group that if they get data from us, it shows that what they're doing is working, then they're gonna go after a larger grant to get funding to support what they're trying to do. So those are kind of the two schools. And then with, within the university, we have uh, operations within student affairs, especially, but also sometimes in academic affairs where they wanna be able to do what they're doing even more effectively. And so they ask us to come in and do a needs assessment uh, and maybe to evaluate in a formative manner what they're doing so that we can provide for them data and then recommendations on how to improve what they're doing. So those are kind of the three areas that we tap into. So we've had long-term partners with Gear Up. We've probably been together for about 12 or 13 years. I think they were my first client, if you will. Um, and then the Division of Student Affairs uses us often to evaluate different units or components of their operation. Um, but the most important part, so that's, the, that's the, what the client gets. But what our students get, they get an opportunity to work in a collaborative team environment with a diversity of different folks. And they learn research skills as they go. They don't have to have any experience coming in. I will teach them what they need to know. So they learn these research skills, they learn how to work on a team in a collaborative manner, manner, and they also learn how to be a leader. Because what I do is after they work with me for a while and they've got a basic foundation of research skills and understand the operation of how evaluation works as a, as a uh, research or with a research orientation, then they become a leader and they actually lead the project. So I might have 10 different projects going on in CREAL at one time. I'm not leading those projects. The students are leading them under support. And I provide the guidance and the direction. I make sure the work gets done. And I have a, a trusty colleague that works with me by the name of uh, Ricardo Batonas. And we just hired him uh, permanently to be with us. And I'm really excited. He comes out of our master's in higher education program, extremely bright, full of energy, brilliant young man. So he is also in there helping make all of this happen. So our students get student development, they get research uh, training, skill training and development, 
They have an opportunity to learn how to write reports, to present data uh, to the clients that we serve, but also to present on a regional, national, and international level. Um, and COVID kind of stopped some of our conference attending and presenting, but we'll get back to that once we're able to. Uh, and so they get a whole, uh, I don't know, I'd say package of research experience, presentation experience, writing experience, and probably most important in all of that is the critical thinking that takes place as they learn how to navigate, negotiate, and solve problems while they are looking for solutions to problems for our clientele. So it's very exciting. I have a model that we use that talks about professional development, personal development, personal identity development, leadership development, research skill development, right? Career development. So our students go on. I can tell you I've got them at some of the, it's not just me, but me and the other people that work with them. They're at Research One institutions getting their doctorates. They're at uh, CSU, other CSUs and, and sometimes at Cal State Fullerton as well, pursuing masters. They work for Orange County. Um, they work for um, some of the major evaluation firms in the country. So I'm very excited. They're across the country from California to New York uh, doing their thing. And the great thing about working in CREAL is that you learn that everyone matters. You learn how to ask questions that require and, and, and the expectation is that you're going to be inclusive. Um, and so whether they're a psych major, an engineering major, a business major, we have all kinds of majors in working in CREAL. They learn the importance and the value of, of um, doing research for change, doing research that has those, where they become a tool for equity-minded uh, work and learning how to apply research to practice in a way that's meaningful and brings about change within organizations. So we should, just for our folks that are listening, because sometimes it's hard when you listen, C-REAL is uh, the letter C dash R-E-A-L, the Center for Research on Educational Access and Leadership. If you're like Matt and me, Matt and, yeah, Matt and me, um, we would think C-REAL is a, a precursor to what you do when you go fishing, because that we would have put that S-E-A-R-E-E-L, and we would have been out there, right? Uh, it, it is a center of excellence at Cal State Fullerton and in the CSU and in the country, and it is probably one of the best examples of what we call a high-impact practice for our students, taking the uh, the academic knowledge and experience that they're gaining in their coursework and putting it to work in a real environment, getting their hands, arms dirty all the way up to their elbows and up to their neck uh, in figuring it out. And so that when they leave, they are ready. They are ready to go to that uh, R1 institution and get their doctorate. They're ready to go out there and do assessment. And you know, you and I both know, Donna, assessment is the name of the game these days. And so you were, uh, no, no surprise to me, but visionary and ahead of the game in um, setting this up for us. So it is a, a wonderful, wonderful thing. But I want to uh, say something here because I don't know that you would fess up to this, but I want to make sure that you, I, I force you to do so. <laughs> and that is, you are not just... Uh, you know, a professor of educational leadership in the department of, uh, uh, of, of, of in the College of Education or the director of CREAL, 
you are a true visionary leader on our campus, on the Cal State Fullerton campus. I know you're a longtime faculty member and director of C-Real, but you do so many other things. Um, and uh, I, I'm hoping that uh, at, in that role, I want to hear from you, um, what do you think are our campuses best attributes and its biggest challenges you know what would you like to see us do more of on campus and what would you like to see us change uh uh what do you like best and what uh what would you what would you like to throw out well that's that's a big question Fram, and i'm not going to take up the rest of our time answering that so i'll give a few tidbits on that um, I think, you know, I've been around the campus, but I, but I have a, a view of the campus that might be a little bit skewed, so I should say that up front, because the teaching that I've done has been strictly at the graduate level, with master's students and, and doctoral students, and I do think that makes a difference, so I want to I put that out there. So the contact and the work that I've done with undergraduate students has been through programs like McNair, uh, programs like um, uh, well, in, in CREAL, we have a lot of undergraduate students uh, and helping out with different projects with the Black Student Union, uh, with um, the uh, work that Natalie Graham is doing out of ethnic studies. So things of that nature that have given me the contact with undergrads. And then also our master's students often work as GAs in the Student Affairs Division, and they will pull me in to present and do different kind of discussion and contact um, have contact with undergraduate students. But I want to just say that up front before I answer your question so that people know what my orientation has been primarily at the university. But the kinds of things that I see that I think are valuable at Cal State uh, Fullerton is that there is a willingness and a desire to do better, to be stronger, to reach higher, to, be, uh, uh, to not be satisfied sitting where we are wherever that is. Like I see that in my own work, I see that in the work of my colleagues around me. I see that in the work that you all are doing at the, at the uh, upper leadership level. So I think those are all really important points that speak to an organization that's still growing and learning and developing and evolving. Um, so I think that's one of our biggest assets. When I talk to other faculty members, faculty here care about their students. Faculty here are committed to doing good work in the classroom to make their students as, to help their students be as prepared and as knowledgeable as possible. And when I talk to faculty members when they go to conferences, they're always looking for, you know, the good stuff that's out there. What's somebody doing that's really good? How are they, who's doing what that's really bringing about a change? I just had a colleague ask me, give me a list of the scholars that are really doing excellent work in qualitative methodologies. So it's like looking at who's doing, we never, we're never satisfied with just looking at ourselves. We're always looking out to see what else is going on in the world and in this country that we can bring back to strengthen what we're doing at Cal State Fullerton. So I think that's a really important asset. And I don't think that's just faculty. I think that's also true for our administrators, um, for our folks in student affairs. They're also out there looking. And so I think that whole idea of wanting to be stronger, be better, to learn, to be open to learning is really important. So what would I like to see us do so I think that's a, our biggest asset, I think. What I'd like to see us do differently, I think we, we've got a lot of work to do still and becoming as equity-minded as we can be in all of our activities, in our decision-making, 
and our programming and our planning um, and our understanding of how the world is changing and evolving and in supporting each other in doing that. So, you know, you, you're gonna make some mistakes along the way because it's kind of new territory. It's new, our students are changing and shifting and we have to change and shift to meet them and to accommodate them to meet their needs and to push them, right? Because it's not just about helping them feel good. We gotta also push them to be the best they can be. That doesn't always feel good to a student when you're pushing them, right? So providing that, uh, the balance of challenge and support for our students. Um, I think we need to, we need, we're going to have to, and we are, spend more time understanding not only the commonalities within our students and amongst our students, but also the differences and accommodating those differences in a way that is a strength for our students and a strength for our organization. And that's where the assessment and evaluation work really does pay off because you get the data that you need. We've got great data people on our campus who can then disaggregate that data down to a fine tooth point where we can know and understand specifically what does an African-American veteran uh, adult student need when they're going through their experience at Cal State Fullerton? What does a, uh, uh, a Latina um, single parent need when she's going through her experience at Cal State Fullerton? What does a transfer student need? You know, who's white, first generation, um, low income, majoring in the arts. You know, we can, we can break it down that distinctively. Um, and I think that in some cases, in, our, in the CSU, this has been my experience. I'm not saying this about Cal State Fullerton, but I'm saying this about us as a connect, as a unit, a state unit. I think that we've sometimes not been willing to disaggregate that data down to the level that it needs to be disaggregated so that our programs and offerings really do meet the unique needs of the students that we have. And you know, you all know that our students are very complex. They're not single character at all. There's not one factor or one variable that defines them or makes them who they are. And so our ability to embrace the fullness of who our students are um, and to do business a little bit differently than we have in the past, I think is going to be really important. We have to find ways to uh, offer a variety of different opportunities and experiences like we do, but we've got to engage all of our students in those activities and experiences in the ways that they need to be plugged in so that they can be su as successful as possible forward. Yeah, it's uh, uh, something that we're talking more and more about every day, and that's the intersectionality of all our students and the fact that uh, they don't just identify as one, uh, as part of one group. And even within each of those groups, those groups are not monoliths themselves. And the need to recognize that. And I love the fact that, for example, for Dirk, that we have all of our uh, uh, different uh, uh, places and spaces together so that they can move seamlessly among the LGBTQ Center and the Latinx Center and the Dreamer Center and uh, uh, the ARC and each of these places and, and, and find their way in, in, because many of them identify with three, two or three of those places and then the Veterans Center, et cetera. Um, and also what uh, Matt and I talk about a lot is the, the need to be come at everything from a strength-based perspective, from the idea that they are additive, that all our students are additive, and that 
That complexity, I love the word that you use, that complexity is what brings the vibrancy and the strength and uh, um, the uniqueness to our campus such that we should leverage that. And then finally, that we need to meet our students where they are, not expect them to come to us at one point to, to the starting line, that they're all at different places in life and different places on that starting line. And our goal is to get them across that commencement stage so they all have the same goal line to get through, but they come to us from different places and spaces there. So I hear you, strongly agree with you. You know, as, as we, you were going to say something, Don, I think. Yeah, I just wanted to just add one other thing that I think that's important in this formula, and that's as faculty, uh, we have to be open to doing things differently. Um, so like I was saying, we go out and get all that data and bring it back. I think sometimes helping us see how that new data, that new information, that new idea that we brought back into our, our um, thinking, our processing, how applicable is it to the students that we're serving or how do we make it applicable so that the students are getting the full benefit of that desire and that motivation that we have to provide for them. And yeah. I think that, you know, the faculty have a very strong commitment to their discipline, right? And to their, their identity and their discipline. Um, we wanna make sure that there's a balance between that and meeting the unique needs of the students that we serve. Yeah, absolutely. And also I think making sure that we will always be, no matter how hard we will try, we try, we will always be resource constrained. There will be never be enough resources uh, for the CSU in particular for higher ed in public education, but comparing us to the resources for the UC and the community college system is dramatically different. We, we'll, we have to find that sweet spot of being willing to stop doing some things that may make some may provide some benefit at the margin in order to do something that will be, provide the benefit in the mainstream that will that will move us the trajectory of us along further even though the program or the or, or the particular thing we were doing still has some value and may have moved us along and may have served its course but that's why we need assessment right we need to figure out what works and what doesn't we know we're graduating, you know, 12,000 students a year and we're closing the equity gap and we're uh, uh, improving our graduation rates. But the question is, how are we doing that? Which one of the things that we're doing, the multitude of things that we're doing to try to do that work and which ones are not working as well to help that? So, uh, you know, uh, we could probably keep Cereal busy 24-7, 24-7. We're happy to have the business, believe me. <laughs> The students learn so much from the range of impossible options that are out there that they're able to tap into. And, and I think not only are our students learning, but faculty also are engaged in CREAL. I didn't mention that when I was describing what we do. We have faculty affiliates who work with us as well. And um, they learn from these experiences, especially when it's internal. When we're doing it for Cal State Fullerton, the faculty involved then also benefit from learning more about our students, learning more about the services that we offer, and then how they can be of, of greater help. Um, for example, we're doing some work with the Children's Center. I'm not an early childhood expert, so I brought in an early childhood expert, Dr. Vita Jones, to look at and examine the data that we had and the recommendations that we've made to that organization. And Lydia does an excellent job there, right? Um, so she was happy to have another early childhood expert take a look at her work. 
So I think that's another piece. And, I, and again, it's another way to get faculty to see how grounded we need to be in bringing about change and using research to do that. So along those lines, uh, uh, you know, what, what we're in the second half of the second year of the pandemic, uh, uh, we've seen it significantly affect higher education, especially affecting our faculty, our staff, our students. Um, we're, we're about to go into uh, uh, back on campus with in-person, uh, primarily in-person. Um, we will be coming in with two classes, our freshmen and our sophomores having never stepped on campus. And our juniors only been on campus for one semester, and that was 18 months ago. So what do you think, Don, are the most uh, profound lessons to be learned uh, in higher ed as a result of the pandemic? What actions should campuses and institutions be taking based upon uh, our pandemic experience? So in terms of returning back to campus? Sure, the future, just the future. So I wrote a piece with some colleagues about this. It was specifically around community colleges, but there's probably a little bit of uh, relevance to uh, what we wrote in that article for, for our conversation today. I think that the leadership on our campuses have got to be as nimble as they've ever been. And that's gonna be tough. I mean, I think there's gonna be a lot of, I'm sure you're feeling it already, a lot of pressure on you all to pivot and move quickly in response to what the governor wants, response to what the health department wants, response to OSHA, on and on and on, the unions, et cetera. There's just so many different um, components to all of this that you're responsible as the, the, the lead leader, if you will, of Cal State Fullerton to respond to. And on a daily basis, on a regular basis and keeping all of that, the, all those balls up in the air. And I know you have people to help you do that. So it's not all on you, but still ultimately, you're the one who has to provide the, uh, the final answer, if you will. So I think being nimble was one of the things that we wrote about in the article and the importance of that. The, the other part of it is not feeling like you have to recreate the wheel, looking at what we were doing before that worked, but also examining what we did during the pandemic that actually opened doors up even more than they were before and not losing that. You know, we had events during the pandemic on Zoom. We all got tired of Zoom, we're all tired of Zoom. But we had events on that uh, during uh, Zoom that had higher attendance than if we had done them in person. So we can't go back to saying, okay, now we're in person. We can't lose that. If we can reach audiences that we couldn't reach before using Zoom and web, you know, webinars and so forth, we should keep doing that. We don't need to not give up all the in-person, but when we do in-person, let's keep doing the webinars and the, the tech, adding the technical component to it. Um, I think about meetings that I attended where the attendance was much higher when we did it on Zoom versus people having to leave their offices to go to another space on campus to meet with people. So I think there are some lessons that happened during um, the pandemic that we should make sure we're paying attention to. You know, how do we get those larger audiences? Um, I think the other part of it is, the other thing is to make sure that our curriculum is responsive to our learners. Um, as folks come back, there's gonna be a lot of anxiety for some people of just being in spaces, sharing spaces with other people. And how do we cushion that, support that, manage that anxiety of just being fearful of what's, what could happen, what might happen, um, and providing options for people if they can't, if they're not ready to come back to campus. How can we accommodate them? So does everything have to be online? Can we do some hybrid? Can we do some, keep, 
tend to keep some things online, some things face-to-face, -face, but I think just offering multiple uh, modalities for, for teaching and learning will be important. Um, I think that for our students to encourage them to, uh, we wanted this before, but we need it even more now for them to be engaged in the life of the college and the life of the university. Uh, to not see us as just a place to come or to sign in for classes, but to also get the rest of their development that occurs outside of the classroom through clubs and organizations and leadership opportunities. Um, and so I think that's gonna take a lot more work probably for us to get students, especially on a campus like ours, which is primarily commuter, to get them back engaged in the life, if you will, of the, of the university. Um, and I, I don't, there were, there were so many, there's so, that question has so many different pieces to it. I don't know if you wanna ask me anything else more specific, but I think it just requires us being open to visioning and revisioning differently and trying some things that may or may not work and being okay with that. You know, testing the waters, if you will, because the re-entry I think is psychological, it's, it's physical, it's, it's sociological, and we've got to pay attention to all of those different aspects. Yeah, that's absolutely right. You know, we, we will come back better, but we will not come back the same. No. And um, I'm very fond of saying uh, that uh, we have spent the uh, time while uh, folks have been away from campus, preparing our campus for doing exactly what you've said, which is um, different modalities for serving our students and, and faculty too. Uh, you know, all our classrooms are wired up so that they can be remote and be taught from the classroom so that you can have a hybrid situation. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, while some of our faculty will want to come back and, and experiment with that, I think we're going to be in the experimenting stage. And I don't mean that in a way that we won't know what we're doing, but we'll be careful about it. But we will be <coughs> modifying what we do over time. <clears throat> so what our goal is to have you know, 30% of our classes be virtual um, uh, at, you know, that's sort of to wh where we're trying to get to. Um, and then lots of our classes hybrid so that you can always, if your car breaks down, you can still come to class. If your childcare uh, doesn't show up, you can still come to class. If you got to take care of mom or dad or sister, brother, uh, significant other, because they're sick, you can still come to class. We have to have virtual labs as well as in-person labs to facilitate uh, community building and, and study groups for students um, uh, in supplemental instruction, both virtually and in person. And we're gonna have to pay a lot of attention to what works and what doesn't work and, and getting people back. Of course, right now, you know, it's what's right in front of us. I mean, literally we're right up against the glass is the brick and mortar uh, uh, blocking and tackling of making sure that when we come back, everything's safe. Um, and welcoming everybody back so that they feel like they want to be back as well. So um, this isn't going to go together in five minutes. It's going to take years to to shake out to the new normal um, that we are we will be aiming for. And that's actually a good thing. Um, you know, uh, I think you and I could probably both agree that higher ed has been pretty stagnant for a long time and resistant to change. Um, and if we had thought a year and a half ago that we would be teaching in these virtual modalities and um, talking about hybrid classes and all these things, everybody told, told us we would be nuts. And yet we did it. Our faculty stepped up. Our students stepped up. Our um, 
the data is dem demonstrative of how, how successful we've been at that with some of the highest GPAs, some of the highest uh, um, uh, rates of continuation by our students, uh, the lowest rates of DFWs, et cetera, highest GPAs. So uh, we, we know that this can work. I do not want to be the president of a virtual college. That is not my, that is my, not, my, not my desire, not my, my, my mission. Um, I love being with people. That's the only reason I do this job is to be on campus and see those students and faculty and staff and, and reach out and feel that connection. But I also believe in access. I also believe in, uh, as we said, meeting our students where they are so that they can continue and they don't stop out. So there's a lot of work to be done, a lot of work to be done. I really, really appreciate that. I don't, I, you know, hold on, I want to just underscore one thing that Don said that I feel like is really important there. And that is you highlighted the importance of, of the students engaging with the Titan experience as we return. It's something that we worked hard on before the pandemic, but it's so much more important now. And um, I want our listeners to, to recognize that just as we embrace the fullness of who they are, we ask that they embrace the fullness of what Cal State Fullerton can be for them. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, we're in the midst of this uh, 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 pandemic uh, with, within our communities and our nation. I know we, you and I have talked about this. We've been suffering what really is, I think, our nation's true plague, and that is exposure yet again to social injustice, uh, inequalities. It's been raining down on our communities, especially our communities of color. You know, from the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor to calls for police reform to new attacks on voting rights, the marginalization of our nation's working poor, uh, these inequities have boiled up and spilled out yet again. Um, and we've seen this play out on our nation's stage multiple times. Do you think this eruption is different? Do you think that um, uh, we will see more uh, sustained? and systemic change? Uh, what changes are you optimistic we will see? And how can we as Cal State Fullerton be a leader in doing that, not just on our campus, but in Orange County and California and the nation? So I, I do think we're, it's different this time around. It feels like it's, it's different. It feels like it's, it's, we're being attacked from all angles, it feels like to me you know, the, the issues around women's rights, the issues around voting, these are, these are critical components to who we are as a democracy, right? And how we see ourselves as a democracy. And the, I feel for the first time in my lifetime anyway, that there's a, a genuine threat to our democracy and that it's coming in, in multiple ways. And it's frightening to me because I thought that, you know, I've always believed that education is a key to our success on a personal level, but also on a, a national level and okay. international. Okay. And that the more educated we become, the more sound we become, the more reasoned we become, the more open we are to others who are the same as us and different than us. And it's interesting to me because I'm looking at all these people who are educated and they seem to have missed that whole uh, it, part of the educational process. So it's really frightening. And it suggests to me that there are definitely some other elements. And I, and I believe that it's, you know, it's, it's supremacy, it's power, it's fear, it's ignorance. You can be educated and still ignorant, right? 
So I feel like there are all these different aspects uh, kind of con converging in, in one uh, unfortunate kind of uh, setting, if you will, and at a time that we really didn't need on top of COVID and the pandemic. And the pandemic's not over. We're still dealing with that, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, so it's feel, I, it does feel different to me. I don't know if that's my age, though. You know, maybe it's just where I'm sitting right now and just dealing with this. But I think that social media has played a key difference. It's made it different as a result of social media and the way that we're able to communicate and interact with each other. How what's happening in Cuba is right at my fingertips, right? What's happening in Germany is right at my fingertips. What happens in New York is right at my fingertips, Chicago, et cetera. And that that's the case for everyone. If you've got a phone uh, and the internet, you can get a, a sense of what's going on worldwide. Um, and that we're not getting it just from our news sources anymore. It's coming from individual people putting information out there. Um, so it just demonstrates to me how important critical thinking skills are. Because I need to be able to read something or view something and understand the context of what I'm viewing and reading, and then be able to determine whether or not this is truth or just someone's truth. You follow me? Yeah. And I think that's part of our problem now is that people aren't sure what to believe anymore. You know, you have one organization saying no mask, you have another organization saying no, you need to keep on your mask, you got another group, and people don't know. I had someone who didn't, uh, who has not been vaccinated yet say to me that um, I'm a bigger threat to her as, because I'm vaccinated than she is to me being unvaccinated. Having that kind of conversation in my head, I'm just thinking, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. Right? Like, well, how is that? But this is someone who's educated. And this was, you know, she's a 50-year-old woman sharing this with me. Anyway, so those kinds of things um, uh, suggest to me how much confusion and in some ways um, how convoluted truth seems to be these days. Um, so I think that for me, I have tremendous hope because I believe in humanity. I have tremendous hope. I believe that we can take negative um, experiences and negative opportunities or not negative experiences and turn them into opportunities. You know, we can rewrite the script, if you will. And I feel like we desperately need to be doing that now. I think we all need to be careful about our election process and protect our voters' rights and then get out there and vote because we've got to do things differently than we're doing them now. We can't continue to go. The political, our political system, our educational system, they're all intertwined and one affects the other. And if we don't continue to educate and educate people to understand what's going on in the world and in their local communities and to get involved and engaged internationally and locally, um, we're going to, you know, end up having some series of implosions that will uh, tremendously impact our democracy. You know, the democracy is a concept and it's got to be fed, nurtured and cared for. It's not just a permanent kind of thing that's there. And I think for years, maybe we've taken it for granted and now we can't anymore. Now we each have to step in and do our part to keep democracy afloat in the way that we value it and believe it to be with, you know, truth and justice for all, right? Equity and equality for all, we have to work towards these principles and seeing them as a reality and seeing them, see them become a reality for all of us. Otherwise there will be no, there won't be a democracy as we grew up understanding and knowing. I think there are, there, there are two myths that um, uh, have been shattered here 
One is the myth of the um, unassailable democracy in the United States. Uh, we, every day over the last, uh, the, the four years of the last administration, something new would happen that would, would uh, make more fragile my view of the uh, assailability of our democracy. And then with, you know, just this weekend coming out of the information about uh, the coup attempts and uh, the need for the military to withstand uh, that just demonstrates that so clearly. And then the second myth that is, is that there was a time when there was more equality and there was a time when things were better and now we need to go back toward that time. That time never existed. Uh, we've been in a constant state of flux and change, fits and starts, uh, uh, maybe, maybe a few steps back before we took steps forward. But we need to realize that you know the halcyon days of the 50s or 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 for for my kids the 70s uh, or something that those were times when everyone was happy. Well, no, only the people of privilege were happy, and there was a whole lot of things going on that and a whole uh, that were un, un untoward and a whole lot of people who were unhappy. And the sooner we recognize that, you know, from my favorite. Uh, uh, brother and pastor Ivan Pitts, I'm not okay until you're okay, uh, the better off we're going to be. Uh, so, you know, I, I too am optimistic, but with some practicality that we have, this is something that we all have to put our, our, our shoulder toward or it will not happen. We, it is not just for those being affected, it's for those who, um, uh, uh, it's for everyone, it's just for everyone. Well, look, we're running out of time, so I want to do something fun before okay. we before we leave. You know, they always have the lightning round where you get to answer a bunch of questions quickly, and you get just to just tell me whatever comes to your mind. What's your favorite color? Purple. All right. What's your favorite word? Love. Uh, what's your favorite food? Oh my goodness, so many. Um, salmon. What has been your favorite age so far? The one I am now, where I am now. All right. What's your favorite book? Um, I'm reading a book now that I'm really excited about. It's called Grandmother's Hands. And I'm really excited about that. It's a, it's a dealing with uh, the trauma of racism. And it's really good. And I, my grandmother's played such an important role in my life. I think I've, I've just been really attracted to that, that concept. All right. Favorite song or singer? Uh, so many. Luther Vandross. Oh, you and Julie. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Luther. She loves Luther. Me too. Okay. Are you an early bird or a night owl? Early bird. Okay. And are you a neatnik or let's call it laissez-faire? Laissez-faire. And dogs or cats? Dogs. Okay. Football, we can baseball, hear that basketball. Answer. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, you hear them in the background. Um, I love football. I enjoy basketball. Um, yeah. All right. All right. So last, last word for you, Don. You got a whole, as I said, we got a whole new group of students coming in this fall, new freshman class, new sophomore class, never on campus, a junior class coming back, community college transfer students. So we're going to be full of 
new Titans who've never been on campus, what advice would you give them as they start this part of their journey? What message would you want to leave with them as we finish up today? I would, I would say to them to come back fully and wholly and engage completely in this educational experience. That college is more than just the classroom. The classroom is important. It's very, very important. It needs to be their priority, but learning will come in many different ways to them if they're open to it. So join a club, at least one, uh, get to know an advisor or a faculty member, get a mentor and take advantage of all the different programs and services that's offered at Cal State Fullerton from helping you think about what you wanna do in your career to helping you navigate the class you're in now to helping you find scholarships and financial aid to support your endeavors. There are all these people that wanna help you and help you to be the best you can be. Please take advantage of that. And I'll say it because you won't. At some point, every one of you should seek, sneak across the college park and take a look at Serial, go up to their offices and, and have a look and you'll fall in love and you'll never want to leave. <laughs> Please do come on in and just hang out with us for a minute. All right. Great. Thank Ron, you, Graham. Been a pleasure. It's great to see you. I missed yeah. you. Uh, yeah. Looking forward to seeing you in person soon. I'll be there. All right. I'll be all there. Right. Thank you all. Have a good rest of your summer. You too. Thanks right. so much. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Fram and Friends, a collaboration between Titan Radio and Cal State Fullerton. For more episodes like the one you just heard, visit titanradio.org.